Ladies and gentlemen, as we turn to our speaker of the evening here, we have a Civil War Lincoln enthusiast, member of the Lincoln Society of Washington, D.C., and a contributor to the book Lincoln for the Ages. This is the distinguished senior senator from the state of Texas. Mrs. Yarbrough says six years is coming Monday since 1957 he has represented that state. He comes from a family that reaches back into the 1840s for their roots in Texas. He's very proud of the fact that he is on the executive committee of the National Civil War Centennial Commission. A resident of Austin, Texas, where the capital is, and an attorney, graduate of the University of Texas Law School. He served as a district judge before World War II. During the war, he was three and a half years in the European combat on the staff of the 97th Infantry Combat Division. And after the war, he was placed in the military government of Japan and controlled the destinies of some one-seventh of the Japanese people at that time. His subject is to be, the rather intriguing title, Some Irregular Notes on the History of of the Douglas Battery. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Ralph W. Yarbrough, Senior Senator from Texas. Thank you, Thank you Mr. President, and uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great honor to uh, address this uh, ancestor Civil War group of all the Civil War roundtables in the nation. It's a pleasure to come here and uh, look at this uh, group of astute uh, Chicagoans. I just wanted to see what people look like who could uh, be so taken captive by Ralph Newman as some of us down in Texas have been. He's captured more Texans than have been in uh, prison in Chicago since... Uh, well, a late unpleasantness when some of my fellow countrymen were uh, detained against their better wishes up at Camp Douglas over there. So uh, I see that he is uh, nonpartisan and impartial in capturing Northerners and Southerners alike. It's, uh, it's a real honor and privilege. I've been in his uh, shop in Chicago a good many times and never come out as well off as I was when I went in. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure to meet with others, most of whom I expect have been in the same circumstances. Well, this uh, morning I met uh, a man that I'd known in Washington for some years, uh, working down in the State Department in the corridors up at the Senate office building, and he, he was in a hurry, and I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Brazil. I said, what for? He said, I'm on a cultural exchange. I said, well, I'm traveling too. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going on a cultural exchange too. He said, where? I said, to Richmond. He said, what for? I said, to visit with the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. He says, oh, a north-south cultural exchange. I said, no, Texas to the east. <laughs> so that's the reason I have uh, mentioned this here as, uh, as irregular notes. Most of the Texans that fought in the Civil War, we had a Hood's Brigade, but most of them preferred the irregular service better. Gave you a little more foraging range. So uh, instead of trying to give a history of the Douglas Battery, I prefer to just follow the old uh, Civil War custom of Texans and, uh, and uh, call this some irregular notes. The Douglas Battery, by the way, was the only battery of field artillery from Texas that served east of the Mississippi 
in the war between the states. But before I go into those notes, I want to mention something that uh, I've recollected out of my experience inspired by this visit you had this afternoon to this prison Civil War Roundtable. I first went to El Paso, Texas as a young lawyer right out of law school to practice law in 1927, working for William H. Burgess, one of the scholars of Texas, who was a lawyer who practiced in Chicago in 1918-19, had been a member of the Board of Regents of the University of Texas and was instrumental in the acquisition by the University of Texas of the famed Wren Library. He started, he had a great deal to do with those negotiations. And uh, when Major Burgess went to El Paso as a young lawyer in the Royal Frontier days when John Wesley Hardin and the gunmen of the West were hanging out there, before he went to Chicago and then came back to Texas, uh, he had practiced a good bit of criminal law. And he'd had a series of cases in the United States District Court. And he and the U.S. District Attorney became pretty bitter antagonists because W.H. Uh, Burgess, the son of... Uh, of a courier in Hood's brigade uh, had bested the U.S. District Attorney in a majority of the cases. And one day they had a case, the man charged with forgery. And in picking the jury, when they went out at noon, the District Attorney says, well, Burgess, you sure tore your pants that time. I've got you this time. Says, you took Major Dow, Major Yandel, and Captain of Forgotten the Third Man's says those Confederate officers, when you indict a man he's guilty, they vote for conviction every time. And Burgess didn't say anything. The district attorney proved a case that was uh, enough to go to a jury, rather weak, but enough to go to the jury. So Major Burgess called the defendant to the stand. And uh, when he started questioning, he denied the crime. The uh, district attorney says, well, Burgess, you really put your foot in your mouth then. I've got you this time whispered across the table. You know lawyers, uh, some of you I know are lawyers, kind of whisper back and forth to each other like football players sometimes to try to have a deleterious effect on the morale of your opponent. So he uh, took the, the defendant when they, uh, he finished denying the offense. The district attorney took him on cross-examination and says, Mr., and I've forgotten this ex-Confederate's name, Mr. So-and-so. Have you ever been convicted of a crime before? Said, yes, sir. Said, what was that crime? Well, the jury said it was murder. Says, where was that crime? Said, Richmond, Virginia. Did you ever serve in the penitentiary? Yes, sir. Where? Richmond, Virginia. And he rested. The counsel W.H. Burgess, a great lawyer in Texas, took the witness back, his defendant, and said, Mr. Doe, said, uh, what year was that? He said, well, it says 1859 uh, to, uh, nine, I believe it proved he went up for life till 19, till 1864. Uh, says, uh, did you get a full pardon? He said, no, sir. Well, how did you leave? Says, well, in December of 1864, they came out to the prison and told us that General Lee was hard pressed. And the men with short terms had already gone. But they took the old life termers and says, if you'll go serve honorably to the end of the war, we'll give you a full pardon. He said, I volunteered. I went. And said, then uh, at Appomattox, everything broke up and we never got our pardons. 
uh, Major Burgess rested his case. The jury was out five minutes, and they brought in a verdict of acquittal. <laughs> he leaned over to the district attorney and said, what do you think of my three Confederate officers now? <laughs> so to, that's a long span back in history. I remember that instant coming down to the present Civil War, uh, prison Civil War round table. Now, the, in 1860, when the Democratic Convention in Charleston split over the uh, issue of slavery, a young newspaper editorial writer in Tyler, Texas, wrote an editorial in the Tyler Reporter. He was 26 years of age, a lawyer who taught part-time in a college there, practiced law, and was an editorial writer on the Tyler Reporter. He wrote an editorial published in the uh, late spring or early summer of 1860 in the Tyler Reporter and said this, our principles are founded upon truth and if we must fail, let it be honorably upon the field of battle. And uh, secession followed and uh, shortly after the Confederate government was set up in Montgomery, there was a great uh, trick of people from over the first seven states in the Confederacy and some from the other southern states that hadn't seceded into Montgomery seeking civil appointments in the new government or seeking commissions. Two of the first men to go out of Texas there were Elkanah Greer from Marshall, Texas and Judge James J. Good, a district judge of Dallas. Uh, they had both served in the Mississippi Rifles under Jefferson Davis in the Mexican War and fought in the Battle of Buena Vista. After that war, uh, Elkanah Greer had gone back to Mississippi and become a major general in the Mississippi militia. He then migrated to Texas and married Anna, Anna Holcomb, the daughter of a wealthy planter at Marshall. Anna Holcomb's sister, Lucy Holcomb, married uh, Governor Pickens, not then governor, but just being named ambassador to Russia. Uh, Pickens uh, had met the young uh, Lucy Holcomb at uh, Sulphur Springs, Virginia along about 1856 or 57. She was a beautiful young girl of about 18, married her. As you know, her uh, picture was the only, she was the only woman ever pictured on Confederate currency as the spirit of liberty. So from this house in Marshall, Texas, Elkanah Greer was commander of the Knights of the Golden Circle in the whole Southwest. And, and uh, the, his brother-in-law, Pickens, was governor of South Carolina, two leading figures in the secession of the South. Uh, both of their wives came from one great uh, plantation home at Marshall, Texas. So when Elkanah Greer uh, went to uh, Montgomery to get a commission, he had these credentials. He'd fought under Jefferson Davis at, uh, at uh, Wayne Vista. He had been Major General in the Mississippi Militia and knew Jefferson Davis well. He was commander of the Knights of the Golden Circle, and he was a brother-in-law of the secession governor of South Carolina. And it's not strange that of the many Texans who beat him there on horseback, none came away with a commission earlier than Elkanah Greer. He was the first Texan to receive a commission directly in the Confederate Army from Jefferson Davis. Good was with him. Judge Good had also fought in the Battle of Buena Vista, also from Mississippi. He carried away a commission as captain in the artillery. So uh, this commission to Elkanah Greer read, South Kansas, Texas Cavalry. He was commissioned to go raise a regiment of cavalry to go into Kansas and capture Fort Scott. When they got back to Texas, the equipment that General Twiggs had surrendered in the Trans-Mississippi Department, primarily in Texas, was at Fort Sam Houston at San Antonio. 
the Confederate government had been very careful to husband that equipment. Uh, Elkhorn Greer's regiment got the pick of the equipment and Good's battery of artillery got the pick of the guns. Uh, they were the, when they were finally formed, a regiment of a thousand cavalry and a battery of a hundred artillery, they were the best equipped troops that ever left Texas during the Civil War. Now, Good went to Tyler and uh, knew uh, this, uh, went to Dallas, knew this young lawyer, Douglas Tyler, who was a first lieutenant in the Smith County Light Infantry, the first company formed there. My paternal grandfather happened to be captain of that company of infantry. So Douglas picked out the 50 youngest men and took them to Dallas, and uh, Good signed up 50 young men in Dallas. Together, that 100 men made the Good Douglas Battery. And they marched off uh, to go to the Indian Territory preparatory to uh, their attack on Kansas. But they were diverted into Missouri because the Nathaniel Lyon was fast driving Price and the Confederates out of Missouri. They got to the southwest corner of Missouri. Elkhorn Greer's regiment participated uh, in the battle there and uh, near Springfield where General Lyon was killed. The good Douglas battery arrived on the field of action that night. They, they couldn't keep up with the cavalry. They were pushing forward to get there in time for the battle and uh, they got there a little bit too late. Uh, they moved over then to Carthage in western uh, uh, Missouri still hoping to make their invasion of Kansas. I have a map here somewhere. Hanging up there. Oh, it's already hanging up. Well, this will briefly sketch uh, the migration of this uh, good <clears throat> Douglas battery. They formed from Tyler in Dallas and marched into Arkansas and to, the, and to near Springfield and then over to Carthage. Later in the winter of 1861-62, they fell back with the Confederate troops which were forming for the battle that uh, led uh, for the action that finally culminated in the Battle of Pea Ridge. At that battle, General McCulloch of Texas, commanding one wing of the Texas forces, was out trying to be a scout by himself and was killed. And then the General uh, from Louisiana, second in command, tried to follow him up and was killed. That left Elkhorn Greer as the senior colonel on the field, on that wing of the army. The generals were killed. He stumbled around and didn't seem to know exactly what to do. Uh, the Confederate uh, encirclement of the Union troops at Pea Ridge, Arkansas, was a debacle. As you know, the retreat took place. And uh, shortly after the battle, L. Connor Greer was relieved, promoted to Brigadier General, and put in charge of conscription for the Trans-Mississippi Department, the desk job the rest of the war. Some things haven't changed in a century. So, <laughs> but uh, Captain Good was, uh, was probably a little too old for the cold weather and the action also. He was relieved shortly after the Battle of Pea Ridge and was promoted to a colonel sent to Georgia and was put in command in charge of uh, Provo courts and court marshals for South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida for the rest of the war. And First Lieutenant Douglas of Tyler became a battery commander. And the battery from thence forward was known as the Douglas Battery. Now in the retreat from Pea Ridge, the cavalry and infantry went one way. They were ordered to retreat. They said they, the action of the light guns, the artillery said they ran off. Anyway, the Confederate artillery, three batteries headed by Douglas Battery, uh, held the ground there for several hours and finally retreated in the direction of Little Rock, unsupported and unprotected by infantry and cavalry. They were moved across the Mississippi that year. 
uh, that spring, moved up to, uh, came to the river, went on boats up to Memphis, went to Corinth, and then back down to Farmington, Mississippi, and ultimately that year, before the year was over in 1862, they went to Atlanta, Georgia, but they went by rail to Mobile, Alabama, then by rail over to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I have, have not traced here the exact routes. I've just drawn these on hurriedly up in the room, the relative routes. They got to uh, Atlanta, Georgia in uh, the fall, of, early fall of 1862, went to north to Chattanooga, Knoxville, joined Kirby Smith's forces, and went into the invasion of Kentucky. At the Battle of Richmond, uh, Douglas's battery opened fire two hours before the Confederate infantry arrived. That was the only complete victory the Confederates won in the Civil War. By complete victory, I mean the utter annihilation of the other army. Several times the Union army uh, annihilated a Confederate force, either by captures at Vicksburg or other means. But that's the one time the Confederate army annihilated the Union army. It was by Kirby Smith's forces, the Battle of Richmond, and the Douglas battery opened the fire first. They had one uh, serious casualty in that uh, Lieutenant Boren, who had distinguished himself at uh, Pea Ridge by standing between the guns and directing the fire, was killed at Richmond. He was doing the same thing. He stood boldly up between the guns, picked the vantage point, directed the fire. A cannonball from the Union side went through his body. That was the men counted one of the greatest losses in the battery. They then moved rapidly uh, northward. And uh, by, the, uh, uh, by September the 15th, they were encamped within four miles of Cincinnati. They wrote letters back. They could hear the steamboats on the Ohio. They could hear the trains whistling in the yards. They thought, they wrote letters home, we'll have Cincinnati in three days. But I don't think they stayed there but about four days. There were Union entrenchments there and they had 6,000 men. They got word that Buell had massed 75,000 against them and they retreated. Now, this was an unusual uh, battery, as many of the early units in the Civil War both sides were. They skimmed off these voluntary units, the cream of the crop. Uh, they had in this, uh, in this uh, battery three newspaper writers, uh, two judges from the courts, a number of law and medical students, uh, a number of uh, cottage profs, and of course their complement of farmers and workers of other categories, but they probably had, out of any hundred men that went to the went to action from Texas in the Civil War, they probably had more college-trained men than any other unit. A number of them kept diaries, some of them kept letters. There are hundred letters of Major Douglas in existence today. Uh, and he wrote back all during the war, and Captain Good wrote back letters all during the war. The first part up to uh, the Battle of uh, Pea Ridge were written, of course, from the battery. Uh, after they retreated, as they came back down through the bluegrass, Captain Douglas, James Douglas, incidentally a grandson of Alexander Douglas who fought in the American Revolution, the Revolutionary Forces, descendant of the famous Douglas family of uh, Scotland and a grandfather of uh, Major Douglas who was one of the fine combat officers of uh, General Patton's army in World War III and who now lives at Houston, Texas. Uh, Major, uh, then Captain Douglas saw a beautiful horse. He wanted this horse very badly. He had a money belt around his body with some gold in it and he took all the pieces of gold he had in his horse and tried to trade it with the owner of this bluegrass horse. He got nowhere and they departed. Three nights after the retreated, and when they were far south, the Union forces intervened with no opportunity of going back there. 
the men called him out at Reveille one morning, had a parade formation, and said they had a statement to make to him. They presented him with this fine horse. There was a printer from Tyler named uh, Dick Smith, Little Dick they called him. He was a small man, had sneaked back in there and stolen that horse and hid it out for three nights. They knew that Captain Douglas would return it. Uh, that's about the highest crime you could commit in Texas in those days, stealing a horse. Men usually swung for that. And uh, so it was three days later and they couldn't return him. Captain Douglas rode that horse the rest of the war. Uh, as they retreated, they went to Murfreesboro. He took part in the action in the Battle of Murfreesboro with great credit and distinction. And then uh, in the Confederate retreat to Chattanooga and the subsequent withdrawal to Chickamauga came the Douglas Battery's uh, most renowned achievement in the war between the states. Uh, I'm going to read an extract from Douglas's letter that he wrote home uh, to his uh, fiancée, Sally White. Now, they named these guns. As he first went into, as the battery first left Texas, he had a section of two guns. Douglas named them, the Texana and the Sally W. That is Sally White, his fiancée. When this company was formed in Tyler, their half, this battery, their half of it, Molly Moore called the songbird, the, the songbird of the uh, Confederacy, that is, called that in the western part, and a poet, a poetess at 16, she had started writing poetry at nine, uh, wrote a poem about the banner that they had. And that poem is lost out of her other poetry that's been published. And the ladies of Tyler made a silk banner and presented it to them. The local legend was that she was in love with uh, Captain Douglas, but uh, he was engaged to Sally White. He wrote Sally White during the war, and here's an extract from his letter that he wrote uh, near Camp near Chickamauga, September the 22nd, 1863. Our army, I'm just reading an extract out of the middle, it's long. Our army moved rapidly forward on the night of the 16th, and on the 17th and on the 18th arrived opposite the enemy. On the 17th, our main force crossed the Chickamauga. The infantry had an attack from the enemy. The engagement was heavy. Our forces driving the enemy some distance, capturing batteries and some prisoners, but were forced to retire to their first position with the loss of one fine battery. My division, Cleburne's, arriving at a late hour, was ordered to attack the enemy's left, where the fortunes of the day had gone against us. Just before dark, we sprang forward at a charge with infantry and artillery and drove them before us some distance until the darkness of the night, together with the blinding smoke, compelled us to halt for the night. At 9 o'clock on the morning of the 20th, a general assault began. We drove the enemy's front line back to a strong line of entrenchments, where at 10 o'clock, one of the grandest battles waged was waged that this war has witnessed. For a distance of three miles, the conflict raged with varying success until late in the evening, when the enemy, driven from their fortifications at many points and closely pursued everywhere, commenced a general retreat, leaving a forlorn hope at three or four strong breastworks, breastworks which they still held. To these points, we turned our attention. Just in front of our division was one of these forts, which our men had been repeated from which our men had been repeatedly driven back. We advanced to a final charge. We rolled our artillery to within 200 yards of the enemy's wall and poured a tremendous shower of shell upon the works. Our infantry advanced to a charge and crossed bayonets with them over the wall. My battery was ordered forward by General Cleburne. I gained a position within 80 yards of the wall and opened with two pieces. Now, this was Douglas' battery's great achievement. They, in this uh, strong attack there, 
that day in where Thomas uh, won his title of Rock of Chickamauga. Uh, they couldn't keep horses up there. Douglas unhitched his horses, and his men rolled his artillery forward as a rolling artillery fire along with the infantry and advanced with them by rolling uh, their pieces. They were six-pounders, and... Uh, they got within 80 yards. They stood there firing 80 yards from the infantry on the other side. Uh, he says, I took Sally. Then when the, the strong points held, the Federals, Union troops retired, he says, I took Sally along and by main strength mounted her within the fort. And he told about, I fired the last gun and the day was ours. Sally's voice spoke out amid the deafening cheers of 60,000 men. The day was ours. And then he goes on and tells about who was killed in their forces. And he writes this, now this is September the 22nd, two days later. The Confederacy may through all time celebrate the 20th of September as a great event in our history. And then he recounts the losses and what had happened in the succeeding two days. Uh, this, uh, this letter our granddaughter has in Texas along with some 80 others with very graphic descriptions. In the 1880s, when, when President Cleveland appointed a commission to go relocate the points in uh, Georgia at the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, Major Thomas, uh, Major Douglas was one of the those appointed to pick that out. And after that, at the Confederate reunions, the men had always been telling how they rolled those guns up within 20 yards of the Union line. But when uh, Major Douglas got there and showed them the points, they were 82 yards apart. Was the point to which they had rolled the guns, and it was marked there. Uh, after the the Battle of Chickamauga, in the uh, Confederate defeat at Chattanooga. Uh, the Douglas battery was on the right wing of the uh, Confederate line at, uh, at Missionary Ridge with Cleburne's division. They held theirs all day and thought they'd won the battle, but at night the Confederate left and center broke and rolled back, and uh, Cleburne's forces, intact and in good order, covered the Confederate retreat. The other was a rout. They covered it, and the Douglas battery uh, covered that retreat all the way down to Rangold as the artillery unit that covered it. He had been promoted to major. In the following action, the following year, in the hundred days of Sherman's from Chattanooga to Atlanta, the Douglas battery was in every action. Now, many times in the preceding years at Farmington, Mississippi, and at Card, uh, Mississippi, the Douglas battery had been in line but not engaged. But in that hundred day retreat, they were in every action, and Douglas, uh, uh, the men uh, wrote home some uh, under him, some uh, rather critical letters, the superior officers. Douglas was commanding uh, at that time the, battalion, the whole battalion of artillery. He was a major. They said if he was a West Pointer, he'd be a colonel, but he's not a West Pointer, and they won't promote him past major, but he's the best artillery officer in the Army. Uh, he held the position of a colonel actually in his command of artillery at different points there. He wrote a letter home uh, from Marietta, Georgia in uh, June that is uh, very interesting where he tells of, uh, of a review by uh, old Joe. General Walthall picked James Douglas out as the officer to go with him on his staff, and he says, Old Joe came, and his three lieutenants were with him, Hood, Hardy, and Pope. And uh, this was at June the 12th, the entrenchments at Marietta. And he wrote, he'd gone home in the winter, and he had married Sally White in the meantime, and he wrote his wife, and he told of this uh, review around here where he had the privilege of going with Old Joe and with Polk and Hardy and Hood. Uh, September the 20th, 
Atlanta had been lost. He, another letter, he describes the visit of Jefferson Davis. And uh, he commented on that after the war, that all the accounts he had, that Davis was a rather dour man and uh, rather glum, but uh, he did not so find him, and that his visit had greatly inspired the army there after that visit. He was at the artillery station at Palmetto Station, and uh, others wrote home that they had been pepped up. He was picked by one of the generals to go with him to uh, see Jefferson Davis, and I presume that that was a further tribute to his ability as a combat officer. In the, after the Battle of Chickamauga, there, and after the other battles, there was great criticism of the Army of the Tennessee for its poor artillery fire, and uh, the Confederate War Depa Department detached uh, Colonel Beckham from the Army of Northern Virginia, Colonel Beckham of Kentucky, and sent Colonel Beckham there as an overall inspector general, you might call him, uh, for want of a better title, of the artillery in the Army of the Tennessee. In Hood's invasion of Tennessee in the November of 1864, uh, Major Douglas was with Colonel Beckham at the crossing of Duck River, where they laid down a barrage of artillery uh, against the Union forces while Hood slipped his army over downstream on Duck River. And during that barrage, a Union shell uh, killed Colonel Beckham as he stood right by Major Douglas. After the war, Major Douglas said he was the greatest artillery officer he'd ever seen. He named his firstborn son for him, and also when he subdivided additions to the city of Tyler after the war, he named Beckham Avenue, he named the, the principal street in his subdivision Beckham Avenue. His two elderly, Major Douglas, two elderly spinster daughters live there in the old Douglas home now. One of them was my history teacher in Tyler High School, a very able teacher. And uh, so that Beckham name was preserved. Incidentally, that Colonel Beckham came from a home in, uh, in Kentucky that's furnished three governors, reared in that same house and out of that same family. I believe there were two Beckhams, and I believe the other was a Guthrie who married a Beckham sister. I won't be positive about that. They're Kentuckians here. They can correct me on that. But one officer, one man who enlisted at Tyler in 1861 as a private, rose to a first lieutenancy named Ben Hardin. He was from uh, Kentucky, from a famous legal family, and he had fought in Nicaragua with Walker's filibusters in the 1850s. And after Walker was executed and the filibusters run out of Nicaragua, he had drifted up there, and Tyler was a young, new and promising town, and he stopped there. He enlisted. He was a first lieutenant in the battery by 1862 and fought on through as a first lieutenant. In, uh, after the crossing of Duck River and the uh, Confederate uh, uh, loss at Nashville, and the Confederate rout and retreat, again the Douglas Battery was put in the rear to uh, save the army in retreat, as it had been at a number of times during the war. Three batteries. Douglas was acting colonel, commanding all of them. Uh, they ran out of uh, ammunition in trying to protect the rest of the army, and their guns were overrun and captured, and a lot of the men, the infantry, came back and saved them all but eight. Eight were captured, put in the prison at Nashville, and carried on north as prisoners of war. But he got out with most of his men. Uh, the battery, the remnants then were not sent to North Carolina with the remnants of the Army of the Tennessee. Instead, they were sent to Mobile, Alabama, to help defend Mobile from the attacks that were being made at that time. And after the fall of Mobile, uh, they were furnished new guns, new equipment, brand new harness for the horses, absolutely new equipment all the way around in those closing weeks, went to Meridian, Mississippi, and surrendered with 
General Taylor. Now, this uh, horse that uh, was liberated, to use the World War II language up in Kentucky, had an interesting history. Uh, they called him Old Dick. As he was a big and a beautiful horse. He went through the war without injury. He rode in, uh, he was ridden in many a battle by uh, Major Douglas at the Battle of Nashville, where so many men were killed in those frontal attacks, those suicidal attacks that Hood ordered on repeating weapons. Uh, Major Douglas had his watch shot out of his pocket. He stopped uh, old Dick long enough to jump on the ground and get that watch, a big gold watch. It had saved his life. The bullet had dented and glanced off. And uh, that watch is owned by his son now at Houston. I've seen the watch. It's owned by the son who was a distinguished officer, I mean the grandson who was distinguished officer under patent in World War III. In the winter of uh, 1962 and three, they get, you know, the armies went into winter quarters and the men would get furloughs to go home. Douglas was furloughed home and married across uh, the river at Natchez, married Sally White, came back to the army before the spring fighting started. In the winter of 63, 64, got a furlough, went home to see his wife. The Mississippi was in Union hands. He swam the Mississippi at night with old Dick, went back, came back to the Army of the Tennessee, rode that horse to Texas back. But when he got married, he was the, the money was so depreciated, the pay didn't amount to much. He floated alone in Tyler from a wealthy family, still one of the wealthiest families in Tyler. He floated alone, but old Dick was his only security. When he came back, when the, after the surrender, and rode old Dick into Tyler, his creditor lifted old Dick from him, and that's been one of the tragedies in that family, as security for the loan. Uh, now, there were another interesting incident. In the fighting at Peachtree Creek, and the very heavy fighting uh, around Atlanta after Hood took command in his efforts to break the encirclement that uh, Sherman had so skillfully woven around it, Atlanta, uh, in one of those actions, uh, the Douglas battery had uh, participated almost like infantry and had captured some equipment and some men. Uh, Douglas got a sword that uh, they also captured some 12-pound Napoleons and were equipped with those from then on, much better than the other guns it had. Uh, Douglas captured a sword, uh, his battery, and they gave it to him. He had no sword. He hadn't had one the whole war. He used that sword the rest of the war. It had an inscription on it, uh, Lieutenant W.L. Coleman, Company D, 40th Regiment, Indiana Volunteer Infantry. Uh, that Lieutenant Coleman had been killed there in the action. In 1868, uh, Major Douglas, back in Tyler, a newspaper man then, uh, running a newspaper and uh, also engaging in business, put an ad in the Cincinnati Enquirer late in 1868, telling of the sword and the inscription on it. And he offered to return it to the owner. And uh, the original letter, which is in the possession of his daughter, Miss Lucia Douglas of Tyler, uh, reads as follows, the answer to that letter. Bloomington, Illinois, uh, January 21st, 1869. James P. Douglas, editor of the Tyler Reporter. Dear sir, Mr. R.D. Coleman handed me a slip published by you in the Cincinnati Enquirer concerning a sword 
upon which was engraved the name of Lieutenant W.L. Coleman, Company D, 40th Regiment, Indiana Volunteer Infantry. Mr. R.D. Coleman is a brother of the dead W.L. Coleman and is desirous of obtaining the sword. I know this man to be his brother, and if you would forward same by express, we will pay the expenses, and you will receive the thanks of a bereaved family. Respectfully, J.L. Coleman, and he sent the sword. Fellow Civil War buffs, uh, I'm told that your custom is to, uh, for the person who brings remarks, to allow time for questioning. I fear that uh, lest we infringe upon the real entertainment this evening and cut you off from questions both, I would uh, had better stop at this time, so I'll terminate my remarks and uh, throw this open for any questions on this particular phase, if I might be able to answer them. It's been a great privilege to be here with you. Thank you very much for your time. Senator Yarbrough, the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, thanks you for this exchange from Texas. We have never had anybody, I don't think, speak to us from Texas before. This is very interesting, especially about the 40th Indiana to myself. Are there any questions that have arisen during this time that he has been bringing this speech? Yes. I would like to ask the Senator if... Uh, there has been a, a uh, publication of this battery. Uh, no, there hasn't been. And uh, one of the men in this battery became a college professor in, uh, in North Carolina after the war. He said, had this battery, I must bow over here to, to Johnson and others, I hesitate to repeat this in Virginia, but it's written in Texas. He said, had this battery been in the Army of Northern Virginia, there would have been volume after volume about it. But, uh, <laughs> but, but he said this, that uh, they were so poor in Texas, they were building a new, the country was raw, they were having to clear the land, uh, it wasn't even tillable, the people pouring in there, that they didn't have the resources. There's a short sketch of it, published in uh, Sid Johnson's Texans Who Wore the Grave, which was published in Tyler, Texas, about 1903. There have been several short sketches published in Confederate veterans' magazines, and uh, there are two or three-page sketches at different places. Now, the Good family in Dallas, the, incidentally, the Good in, uh, family is very well off, the, survivor, the, the survivors in Dallas. Captain Good came back and sought the governorship and Congress both. He failed in each of them to attain either one. Those were con convention days. He couldn't get the nomination but was elected mayor of Dallas and served with distinction. Uh, his descendants have the letters he wrote. There's some jealousy about this. They say the right name, the Dallas people of this battery, is the Good Battery. There's some talk that Bell Wiley is going to get those letters and publish a history of this, uh, of the Good Battery. Now, the, most of the letters were written by Douglas. They're in possession of, uh, of a descendant of uh, Major Douglas at Dallas, who is the wife of an editorial writer of the Dallas News. And uh, she will not permit anyone to see them. But 
they were in the possession of Miss Lucia Douglas of Tyler. Miss Lucia Douglas was the daughter of a second wife of Major Douglas. Miss Lucia Douglas copied the letters, but then gave them, she has the copies, except some uh, that are written to Major Douglas directly, uh, like the letter from, from uh, Bloomington. Uh, she, uh, those re letters, though, that Major Douglas wrote to Sally White, she gave to the lady in Dallas because that lady was descended from Sally White and the Douglas sisters in Tyler are not. And uh, so the Tyler people want to see this uh, history, want to see these letters published from Major Douglas, which were the letters of graphic description. And there's another interesting incident. Andrew Jackson Houston, son of Sam Houston, who at the age of 89 was appointed U.S. Senator by Pappy Pass the Biscuits, Pappy O'Daniel of Texas, <laughs> while he was governor. Uh, Andrew Jackson Houston was courting uh, Judge Good's daughter. Judge Good didn't think too much of him as a prospective son-in-law. Andrew Jackson Houston was a painter, and uh, he painted the scene of this battery in action, and it was in a show window, put it in the window of a big department store in Dallas along in the 1880s and 90s for six weeks to exhibit it, and he called it the Good Battery in Action. I think he won the young lady's hand. Paintings <laughs> in Dallas. So there's several. Unfortunately, this uh, has not been published, and uh, of the artillery units from Texas, none served with such distinction. The fact that it covered the retreat of the Army of the Tennessee on numerous occasions shows the uh, high qualifications of this battery. They lost their guns only in that retreat from Nashville. Only time I think they lost one gun in another battle. They had some. Uh, were blown up and damaged. But they got the Napoleons uh, that were captured in the Atlanta campaign, the better guns, they lost those, and uh, when they lost those in the retreat from Nashville, they were re-outfitted uh, at Mobile about January of 1865. Thank you. Anyone else? Any question or contribution? You can pick on him even if he is a senator. He's used to that. My wife reminds me that I said that... Uh, uh, Major Douglas' son served in Patton's army in World War III. I was over there in Europe. It just seemed that long. It wasn't <laughs> World War II. Warren? Yes. Well? Did I understand you to say, uh, Senator, that uh, Major Douglas swam his horse across the Mississippi back to Arkansas? Back, back to Texas, yes. Swam his way across the Mississippi? The horse. Where? The horse swam. Somewhere, I don't know which point. <laughs> yes, sir, but my grandfather swam it without benefit of a horse with his, with his clothes rolled up on his shoulder. You can't swim the Hudson, I don't think, at hardly any point there. <laughs> We're in good time. I think I will uh, cut off the questioning at this period. And I, yes, uh, John? I don't have a question. I do have one comment to make. A friend of mine from Oklahoma, whose name I won't mention, uh, a while ago, why didn't they get that other senator Texas, he knows something about the Civil War. <laughs> I think we found a good Democrat tonight who knows a very good lot about it. <laughs>
I have a little additional interest in that battery. I had a great uncle and two cousins who all named Yarborough who were with it the whole four years. <laughs> Meeting is adjourned.